Thank you to our worship team, to our video team, to everybody who makes it possible for us to sing those songs of Advent and Christmas. It's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. It's taking a real team effort to make it happen, but just such a joy. Uh, thank you, songs. Uh, thank you, Ryan Diala, and all those who were a part of uh, that last song, Oh Holy Night, and we have another one coming later. Here in the office, we were really excited about the songs, so we were singing a little bit loud. We were a little bit nervous that uh, this, this microphone was on and that you guys could hear us, but uh, we were belting it out and it sounded really good in here, uh, Oh Holy Night. We were like right there with Celine Dion, uh, just competing with her. <laughs> the songs of Christmas. Uh, are so powerful. Can you imagine uh, Christmas without Christmas music? Uh, no soundtrack happening uh, behind the season uh, in our homes and out and about. Can you imagine Christmas without the songs of Christmas? Yeah, it's, it's impossible. It would be terrible. The connection of singing and, and Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Jesus, it goes back to the very first Christmas. In the Gospel of Luke, we find the original songs. We find uh, the original soundtrack of Christmas. Uh, these were songs written by people and uh, sung, sung by them and by angels, all surrounding the birth of Jesus, each of them trying to wrap their minds and their hearts around the, the, the wonder and the meaning of the incredible claim at the heart of Christianity that God has visited us, come to us in the person of Jesus. Now, I realized this week you know, there's really nothing like this in the Bible, where all these songs erupt, they're written and composed and they're sung around a, an event or an action of God. There's nothing like it. There's these four songs here in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that all erupted, that all were sung and composed and recorded around the birth of Jesus Christ. It's as if this unbelievable and unfathomable claim at the heart of the Christian faith, this grand miracle, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the incarnation, that God became man, that the independent one became dependent, that the eternal one entered in time, the infinite one became finite, the almighty weak, the unbreakable, breakable and frail, the exalted one became humble. It's as if words alone are not enough. We need the songs. Songs were needed. Hans Christian Andersen uh, once said, where words fail, music speaks. Now, 2020 has been a very hard year, a very difficult year. Maybe words are starting to fail you. Uh, maybe they're starting to fail us. We've thought every thought that can be thought. We said every word uh, that can be said. We're tired of words like unprecedented and disruption and new normal. And we're like, we're tired of all the words. <laughs> We've said it all and heard it all. As we look to try to find joy and hope and peace this Advent, Maybe we need songs, we need music, and that's the heart behind this series that we are in. We're calling it Songs for a Weary World, as we look at these four songs at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Last week we looked at Mary's song, it's known as the Magnificat. Today we're going to be looking at the second song in the Gospel of Luke, the Song of Zechariah, which is traditionally known as the Benedictus. It comes from the first word in the Latin translation, Blessed Be God. Well, in order to understand really the song, we have to understand the context and the backstory behind this song. 
It was sung by Zechariah. And this song came after a period of nine months of silence where Zechariah didn't even say a word because God had taken away his ability to speak. So why would God do that to someone? Well, here's the story. Zechariah is the first person mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. He comes on the scene in verse 5 of chapter 1. He was a priest. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And both of them are described as being righteous, very mature spiritually. They are righteous in God's sight, faithful, mature people. But they could not have kids, and they were getting very old, advanced in their years. And at the time, not having children was seen as a sign of social disgrace and also as a sign of spiritual disfavor. And so they had dealt with this all their lives, the, the social impact of that and the struggle that they had with God over it. And the opening scene in Luke is when Zechariah uh, had his turn to enter into the sanctuary. This was a very, very special thing for a priest at the time. Some priests never got their chance to go into the holy place to burn incense on behalf of the people. So in this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Zechariah enters in to the holy place to burn the incense, and something crazy happens while he's there. An angel appears to him, and this angel says, uh, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your wife will bear you a son, and you will name him John. And Zechariah says, understandably, to this visit of this angel, and said, "What? trying to wrap his mind around it, how can I know this? Uh, I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years, and the angel says, okay, you'll become silent and unable to speak because you did not believe my words until they all come true. So six months later, Elizabeth, his wife, receives a visit from her relative, Mary, who is pregnant, who has conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. She comes to their home, and they're processing all of this, and he realized his son, this miraculous son, is going to prepare the way for another son who is born even more miraculously. And now we're going to fast forward nine months later to right before the song was, was sung and composed by him. Uh, in verse 47 of chapter 1, his wife Elizabeth, it says, gave birth to a son, just like the angel said. But he still couldn't speak until the eighth day of his son's life. And it was the custom for family and friends to gather. It was a big event to dedicate the child for his circumcision and to name the baby. So big day. Kind of like we have uh, baptisms now when a baby is, is baptized and welcome into the covenant community, the church. There is family present, and it is a wonderful uh, event where people are all present for that. Same thing going on here. Everyone thought the name of the child, though, would be Zach Jr., Zachariah Jr. That's how things worked at this time. It was tradition. It was customary to name your children after somebody in the family. And here, this child who had been born to Elizabeth and Zachariah in their old age, they were thinking, surely they'll follow this custom, Zach Jr. That's... Uh, the obvious choice. But Elizabeth said, no, his name will be John. That's a common name of the time. Many uh, people were named John. It means uh, the Lord is gracious, but nobody in their family was named John. So Zechariah couldn't speak, and when Elizabeth said that, everyone said, we got to check with the dad. Dad, what's going on? And he had a tablet, and he wrote it out on the tablet. His name is John. And right then, at that moment, he was able to speak again. And what did he say? 
What words came out of his mouth? It was this song that we just heard read, the song of Zechariah. Now, this background is important for us to get the context, but especially important for us in what we are all going through, what we have all gone through. This song came from a period of forced silence and reflection. Zechariah didn't choose it. He didn't take a vow of silence or something. God chose it for him. God took him through this season of forced distance, forced disconnection from people. He couldn't speak, but it wasn't a punishment for Zechariah. It was a gift. It was this time of reflection and listening. The song that he sang that we're going to get into is full of Scripture, full of the themes of Scripture. All tie- It's so rich, I could barely decide what to do with it for this sermon. All these things Zechariah was soaking in, in this time of reflection and listening. You know, it wasn't a time for him to talk or, or post <laughs> on social media. It was a time to listen. And Zechariah was, it says, a very righteous, faithful man, very mature in his faith, but he had more to learn. And what he learned comes out of this song. And for us, I think this is very significant. It hit me as I was thinking about Zechariah. Nine months ago, exactly, almost, our lockdown began, you know, in March. Uh, We realized, you know, COVID is real. Uh, It's going to change our lives. We were just beginning to realize that nine months ago. March 15th was our first live stream service. And it's December 13th, nine months. Here for Zechariah, a song came out of these nine months of disconnection, of forced disruption, to listen to God. And in those nine months, it was in those nine months that God gave Zechariah the time for it to all begin to come together, what he was doing, what was happening, and what God was doing. That God himself was visiting. The entire song of Zechariah is framed at the beginning where he says God has visited and at the end what that visit will mean. The sunrise from on high will visit us. And he realized his son was to prepare for this visit. So as I thought about that, I thought about for me and for all of you, how have we used these nine months that we didn't ask for, that we didn't choose, but that have come upon us, this season that has caused us disruption and disconnection Have we been listening to what God wants to do? And here at the end of this nine-month period, 2020 is about to end. We're in Advent and in Christmas. This song of Zechariah can speak to us. I think in three powerful and yet difficult areas that we have faced in our weariness for 2020. How can the truth of God's visit, God's visit to us as one of us, How can that speak to our weariness after nine months of disruption and difficulty? Well, there's so much this song has to say, but I want to look at three things that I think to some extent we've all experienced. Waiting, fear, and darkness. And so let's look at how this song speaks to those three things. Our waiting. Christmas has a lot of waiting built into it. You know, that's just how we celebrate it. We wait for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, to open up most of our presents. Often in normal times, we'll wait for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to have our special meals and our most important traditions. So we wait. You know, in in our house uh, to uh, 
to make the waiting easier, we have a couple countdowns up. We have two different countdowns that we hang up. We move them each day closer and closer to December 24th and December 25th. Like We can wait, right? Even kids, we can wait uh, for Christmas to come to open our presents. We know it's coming. We see the countdown every day gets a day closer. Zechariah had to wait nine months, right, before speaking a word to anyone. That's a long time. But he was told he would speak when the child was born, when all these things came true. It must have been really hard for him, but he knew that it would end. And his song shows us that during his time of silence, as he was waiting, he was thinking a lot about waiting. He thought about how long he and the people of Israel had been waiting. He remembered King David. If we could put the passage up on the screen, just as I point these things out. Verse 69, he remembered King David, the promise to David's house. He remembered the prophets of old or ancient times in verse 70. He remembered his fathers. Another translation says his ancestors, verse 72. He went all the way back to Abraham in verse 73, and he remembered the story of Abraham. This song of Zechariah covers almost the entire Bible. <laughs> Abraham comes on the scene in Genesis 12, all the way up to his point in history where Zechariah sits, and he says, it has been a long time of waiting. And for hundreds of years, after the last prophet spoke Malachi, it seemed like God was silent and they were waiting in silence, not knowing when it would ever end, if it would ever end, if God would act, if God would visit, if God would move to redeem his people as he promised. You can read the entire story of Israel. Zechariah's song gives us this insight as a story of waiting, as a story about the struggle with waiting. Abraham was promised a son by God, but he couldn't wait, and that's where we see the story of Hagar and Ishmael. David was promised the kingship, but he had to wait many, many years for that. And there we see his psalms of waiting and struggle that he wrote during that time. Israel in the wilderness was promised a new land, but they had to wait through the wilderness journey. And the first generation complained and said, we cannot wait. The whole generation couldn't wait on God and his timing. And the prophets spoke to this repeated cycle that happened of idolatry, of replacing God, looking to other gods to do what God had promised. They said, we can't wait. You're taking too long. And so we're going to look to other gods. That's the story of the entire Old Testament up until this time. As we think about waiting for us, has anybody in history had to wait less than us? <laughs> Probably not. We can get food and groceries delivered in hours. Uh, we can get on-demand entertainment, right, whenever we want it, just, just a click away. We can get instant answers and information. We just Google it. The thought of waiting is almost unacceptable to us. We say, wait, no, no, that is not a part of life anymore. But we've all just had to experience nine months of waiting. Waiting for things that are outside of our control with COVID and vaccines and lockdowns and canceled and changed plans in church not being as we hope it would be so much waiting 
The French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit in a quiet room alone. I think we could modify it and say all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to wait. Why? Why is it so hard when waiting feels like it's doing nothing, right? It feels like God is doing nothing. It's a nothing time. But Zachariah's song shows us that that is all wrong, and this is so, so important for us. Maybe never been more important for us to get this. Waiting is not to do nothing. Waiting is to do the most important thing. Waiting is not where God is doing nothing. It's where he does some of his most important work, what we most want God to do in our lives. Isaiah, the prophet said, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Do we want renewed strength? Well, it comes in waiting. All who wait patiently for God are blessed and happy. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Do you want to have blessing and happiness? It comes in the waiting. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Isaiah 64. Do you want God to act on your behalf? It comes in the waiting. Zechariah's name, it means the Lord remembers. And throughout his song, we see the language of promise throughout. He says, God remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his people. Friends, this song tells us we never wait in vain. If God promises, if he swears, if he makes an oath, which he has, to redeem us from all sin and suffering, he will keep his word. Zechariah realized in his nine months of waiting, he realized with the birth of his son John was a preparation to prepare the way for Mary's son Jesus, that in all that preparation and what was happening with Mary's son was that God was visiting, is there in the very first verse, Blessed be the Lord our God who has come to visit us. And this was the mind-blowing reality of Christmas, of the Incarnation. That all that God promised, that all that He swore, His oath that He made, that He was going to meet and exceed all the expectations for those who were waiting on Him to keep that promise. God had not forgotten. God had not given up. God was not absent. And he had come to visit. Message of Christmas, friends, to us in our waiting, if we are angry with God, if we are disappointed in God, if we are weary of waiting, it's this from Zechariah's song. God keeps his promises in a way that meets and far exceeds anything that we are waiting for. So summary. Waiting is not doing nothing. Waiting is where we learn to trust God to do what he said he will in his timing. So this is a song for the waiting. It's also a song for our fears. <clears throat> Bible Gateway uh, is the most popular Bible website. I use it all the time. YouVersion is the most popular Bible app. I use it all the time. You probably use it as well. Both of them released uh, in 2020 their year-in-review reports. Here are some of the results. The most searched verse on the app was Isaiah 41, 10, which says, Do not fear, 
the most searched verse in 2020. Do not fear, for I am the Lord, I am with you. The most searched word on Bible Gateway, after a lot of the good kind of positive vibe words like love, joy, hope, faith, um, was fear. The first struggle word, the first word uh, that is difficult, that was searched in 2020, was fear. There has been a lot of fear this year. And can I ask you to take a moment right now and just think about this question, what fears have most driven you this year? No one has been immune to being driven by fear, affected by fear. What fear are you carrying now here at the end of the year? Zechariah's song here is divided into two parts. There is the blessing to God and the blessing on his son. 69 through 75, a prayer of blessing to God. 76 through 79, a blessing on his son and his ministry of preparation. The first part begins with praise to God that he has visited us. And it ends with what God came to do in this visit, in that first section. What was the result? What was the end game result of the visit of God? It's in verse 74 to make it possible that we might serve him, worship him, without fear. All our days, a life without fear. This is the purpose of God's visit. This is the purpose of him coming into the world as a human being, the reason for Christmas. Can we imagine a life without fear? Can we imagine a world that is not driven by fear? That, Zacharias says, is the purpose of the visit of God. But why are we so afraid? Why are we so driven by fear? Zechariah's song tells us one of the root causes of our fears is our enemies in his language. He says it twice. He says, praising God that you will save us from our enemies, verse 71. And then later, that being delivered from our enemies in verse 74, only then can we live this life free from fear. Now, who are these enemies that he's talking about? And how does it apply to us? There are a lot of different um, thoughts here. This is where a lot of discussion happens in the commentaries. What was Zechariah thinking when he said enemies? Was it the political and cultural enemies of his day, the Romans? Uh, was, was Zechariah thinking at a deeper level, a more profound level that is revealed to us in the ministry of Jesus? The, ministries, uh, the ministry of Jesus exposed the enemies of our soul, our sin, the flesh and Satan, and the suffering that results from them. Well, I think the best way to understand what Zechariah means about enemies and how it applies to us is that he's talking about them all. That in the visit of God, God came to set us free from fear from all of these enemies. Let me see if I can help apply this to a very important thing that has happened in 2020 in all of us. Uh, at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, the, the people of God, Israel, were consumed with their enemies. If you read the Gospels, you'll see this. The Romans had subjugated and ruled over them for many years. They were enemy number one, but they also had turned on each other. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes, there were the Zealots, there were the Herodians. They were all divided into these groups and they hated one another. Each one of these groups was divided over how to handle enemy number one and whether or not whether or not in God's uh, timing, in God's economy, what it looked like 
for them to be spiritually faithful. And they were all worried about whether each of them was getting more power and influence. And life was driven by fear of all these enemies. Fear of the Romans, fear of other groups getting the power. They were so enemy-centered that when God visited, what was by far the most common response to Jesus, to him, God in the flesh, he became another enemy. And they treated him like an enemy, putting him to death. This was the culture into which Zechariah was singing, this enemy-centric culture. Friends, what has 2020 revealed and intensified about us and our fears? The fear that we have from living in an enemy-centric way. Uh, I think this is what 2020 has revealed and exposed and intensified. Uh, We have spent so much time so much emotional energy, so much of our thinking on thinking about who are our political enemies or our cultural enemies, who are our conspiracy enemies, who are our national enemies, who are our spiritual enemies, our mask enemies, our restriction enemies. All this has dominated the public discourse. All this is what we find when we consume media or go on social media. It's all formed and centered and consumed with our enemies. And I confess in my own heart, I've, I've been consuming more news and social media than I have in, in really my whole life. And as I've been doing that, I've realized my own heart has been more driven by fear, more shaped by fear than by faith and by trust. When we are enemy-centric, What's going on is that we realize what we're doing is our actions, our heart is more founded in, is more fueled by fear than it is by trust and faith in God. Verse 74 says, this is what Christmas says to that, the result of God's visit. This is what God is saying to us. On a human level, those whom you consider your threats, those whom you consider a threat to your well-being, political, cultural enemies, the whole thing. God says in the coming of Jesus, I have come to handle your enemies and you will love your enemies. On a spiritual level, the enemies of our soul, sin, death, Satan, and the suffering that comes from fearing all of those, God says, I have come, I have come to visit, to conquer your enemies. You don't have to fear them. You don't have to fear sin. You don't have to live in fear of suffering. You don't have to live in fear of Satan and spiritual evil. And you don't have to live in fear of death itself. To live a God-centered life, Zechariah's song shows us. To serve him, to worship him in holiness and righteousness. Before him, as long as we live, we have to let go of an enemy-centered life. Then, realizing that God has come to visit to deal with our enemies, we can be free from fear. We can live a God-centered life. There's more, much more we could say about that um, before I move to my next point. Just wanted to share this. For the best articula- articulation that I've heard around this, uh, the great harm that this 
enemy-centric living does, this fear-based living does to our public witness, an ability to be what we are called to be, a force for the common good where God has called us to be. Just want to point you to something. Go and listen to uh, something called the Church and Politics podcast by the Anne Campaign. It's end-of-year episode by Justin Gibney. He talks about an op- opposition-centered public witness and how we need to learn to be free from that, not driven by fear, uh, but by driven by faith, love, and faithfulness to our calling. Justin Giveney in the end campaign. This song speaks to our waiting. We've had to do a lot of waiting. It speaks to our fear, setting us free from an enemy-centric life to live a God-centered life. And finally, this song speaks to our darkness. I saved what I believe to be the most important and significant contribution of Zachariah's song till this final point. There are other places in Scripture that highlight the covenant faithfulness of God powerfully and speak to how that addresses our waiting. There are many passages that speak to God's desire and power to set us free from our enemies, whatever they may be. But I can't think of any other passage that gives us a more powerful picture of the very heart of God, the very heart and center of God's motivation the reason why, the reason behind God would visit us and become one of us as a human being. Which when we believe this, when we let this picture, this heart of God, when we let it get into our hearts, when we receive it and believe it, it can enable us to face and walk through any darkness, no matter what it is. So what is this? What is this picture? It's all found here. Verse 78, we can throw verse 78 up on the screen if we can get that. There's the word because. It's one of the most important becauses in all of the Bible. It says, there will be a dawn that will come. The dawn is breaking with God's visit to shine on all of our darkness and even into the shadow of death. Why is this dawn coming? How do we know this dawn is coming? It's because, because what? Because of God's merciful, tender compassion. It's the only place this combination of words is used in all of the Bible. God's tender mercy, it's translated. God's merciful compassion. God's compassionate mercy. Uh, The translators try to figure out exactly how to bring the full force of this expression home. And I've shared this word before with with you guys. I've tried to teach you this Greek word because I think it's so important. It gets us to the heart of God. It's this word splankna, which means your inward, your your bowels, your intestines, the very gut of your guts, the seat of your affections and feelings. This tender mercy of God is what drives all the action. It's the source of it all. Because this is God's heart. This is who he is, who he has always been. And he, he will always be this way. That is the reason we know that the sunrise from heaven will come into our darkness, no matter what it is, and into the shadow of death. You know, what happens when the dawn comes, when the dawn visits? Um, you know, when, when people, just share an illustration on this, when people... Um, I've noticed 
look to move into a home, whether they're renting or buying, one thing that I've heard people say a lot, I never could quite understand it. People are like, well, what, what direction does the house face? You know, and they're kind of analyzing it all northwest, east, south, and all that. You know, what, what direction is that? Like, ah, oh, no big deal. Like, whatever. I, I like a well-lit house. And some people get so focused on that. But I realize how important that can be because uh, this has happened to us a few times. It, hap it happens in our home that we live in now that the windows that we have that look right into our bedroom, like right, right there where we sleep, those windows are facing east to the sunrise. So when the sun comes up, uh, we have to get up. And we have these, these windows that are high up. We don't have anything actually covering them. They're up, up high. And so that sun, when it rises, shoots right into our room. There's nothing we can do about it except we can try to keep the sunlight out. We could try to block it out. We could try to put curtains up. We could try to figure out a way to get that sunrise from getting into our home. But there's no stopping the sunrise. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, in a chapter called The Grand Miracle, where he writes on the Incarnation, he compared the Incarnation to the rising of the sun. And he said, I, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. What he's saying there is that this central claim of Christianity, if it is true that God has entered, he has visited, as Zechariah has sung, if he has come to us, then not only does it mean we look, we look at it, this grand mystery that we can barely, barely fathom and understand, but through it, it sheds light on everything else. And that's what Zechariah is saying here, that the visit of God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ sheds light on everything, everywhere, no matter how dark, no matter how great the shadow. God coming to visit as one of us means when all is dark, when we're living in dark times, when we're sitting what we feel like in the shadow of death, it says we look to Christmas. We look to the truth that God has come to visit us. If God became one of us, if God has become a human being, he knows and he understands with tender compassion exactly what we're going through. And he longs, he can't not help but long to rid us of the effect that the darkness has on us to rid us of sin, to rid us of suffering. His tender compassion, his very heart of hearts, means it will happen. He will do it. The sun will rise. And what's our choice? Our choice, according to the passage to the song, is either to remain sitting in the darkness and in the shadow of death, or to look to the sunrise like a light that's coming in to, to a room. We can try to shut it out and we can sit in the darkness or we can open up the windows, the windows of our soul, and we can look to the sunrise. And as we look to the sunrise of the visit of God coming to us, when we do that, we're able to see everything else in a whole new light. And no matter how great the darkness, no matter how hard it is, we have the promise of God according to his tender, merciful, compassionate heart that the dawn 
is just the beginning of the new day that surely will come in Jesus when he redeems us of all our sin and all of our suffering. So when everything seems dark, difficult, and confusing, when suffering comes, we can't explain. We feel like we can't endure. When circumstances happen, we can't understand them. Why is this happening? We don't think we can handle it. Zacharias says, there is a reason still to sing. His song tells us, don't sit in the darkness. Don't dwell on the darkness. Don't dwell on your enemies. Don't dwell on the things that oppress your enemies, your threats, your fears. Don't dwell on those things. Look to the sunrise. Look to Jesus, the one who has come and in whom we can know for sure that the new day has come. Friends, look to him. Let's do that now as we close in prayer together. Father, there are so many things that we're just we're tempted to look at that gain our attention and our focus, ways that our fears lead us to obsess about what might happen, what could happen. Ways that our waiting makes us just want to escape and look to some other way to handle what's going on within us. And I pray, Father, now in our waiting, in our fearing, in the darkness that sometimes seems off so strong, that we would look to you. Give us the grace this season to gaze upon the sunrise, to gaze upon what you have done through us in Jesus, that you know you understand us and you have come to lift the darkness. And may you give us the grace to keep walking in the way of peace. We can't do it except by your Holy Spirit. So give us the strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.